Well, when someone asked me, uh, what, what sport did you play in high school? I tell them proudly, I, I was in marching band. Yes, that was the sport that I played, marching band. Jim gave me a th thumbs up, he understands. Um, but that's, that's it's exercise. What, it's exercise, it is. A, a parade, you know, you, you, man, you get out of breath a little bit. But um, it is a lot of work, and you'd be surprised. We even had summer camps where we had two-a-day marching band practices. I know it's blowing your mind for you athletes out there. Um, but we put in some effort as we learn our program and... Dude, I went to Greeley Central in, in Greeley, and it was, it was a lot of fun. We had a big band, and we had lots of practices, and we often, in the evening, we'd have our practices on the practice field, which is right next to the main field, and so you had the main field with the grandstands, and then the practice field beside it, so our band director, he would always go up on the top of those bandstands and be able to see the whole field and see how we were doing and things, and I remember one day, and he was a great band director. We, we loved him. Um, he was a beloved Mr. Davis, we, we um, loved Mr. Davis. And he uh, watched our performance, we got finished with it, and he called us up, he said, he had a megaphone, he's like, get closer, come on up everybody, get closer, get closer, get closer, get closer, get closer, and he had to get us really close, and then he yelled at the top of his lungs in that megaphone, that was horrible! <laughs> That wasn't he. He that's not exactly what he said. He may have used a, a different word in there somewhere, but it was PG-13. No, no worry. He wasn't over the top. But we all were like, <laughs> and it stopped us in our tracks. And I remember to the day to this day, it had an impact because it was a little bit out of character and um, was shocking. Um, and we get to this passage in John where it seems, in one sense, it feels like this shift in the actions of Jesus, he was just at a wedding feast, celebrating the wedding and enabling when their wine had run out, he enabled there to be water turned to wine in plenty, gallons, 120 to 180 gallons of wine, and provide provision so that the family wouldn't lose face, and, and that they, he then shows just even this newness of Christ and this new wine that comes in a new life that we have in him and all these things that are going on in this picture and then we have this other picture now where Jesus comes into the temple and makes a whip and drives out the animals and the and the traitors there and those who are um, taking advantage of the people of God so there's a shift in such a way that our ears should perk up there's a different tone in this passage than many of the different passages that we're going to walk through in the Gospel of John here. So even this sermon may have a little bit of a different tone to it as well as we walk through this. We think, too, early on in the prologue of John, where John told us that Jesus was full of grace and truth. And some of us love the grace passages and struggle with those truth ones. And here we have one where Jesus speaks truth, and he comes in um, less like the Lamb and more like the Lion of Judah here in the temple place. So we see here, we'll begin verses 13 through 17, and we see Jesus' zeal for God's house and for right worship, his zeal for the temple, for right worship there in that place. And verse 13 begins, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So 
Here we have the scene that is set where Jesus, and we'll see a little bit later that his disciples, the, the ones that he has called to him that are following him at this point, they're with him too, and we'll see that. And he goes, they go up to Jerusalem. They go there for the Passover time. And we're going to see in John, there are three times where Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for the Passover. Here in chapter 2, we'll later see it in chapter 6, and later at the end of chapter 11 into 12, that he goes to Jerusalem for Passover to celebrate. And just a reminder, Passover was the time where they celebrated and remembered God's rescue, the rescue of the Jews from Egypt. And it was celebrated in early spring, so probably March or April was a time frame of what was when it happened. So depending on the calendar year and things, um, it would fall on different dates. It was celebrated uh, by an annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So they would go to Jerusalem from all over the place. From all over the world, they would come and go to Jerusalem. And there were, I've read accounts of maybe 100,000 to as many as 250,000 people would flood Jerusalem and go. And they were to take a year-old unblemished lamb or goat, if they could afford it, or a dove, and sacrifice it at the temple. And then they would take it home and cook that and eat it as in a private family celebration at sunset. And it was a reminder of them, to them, that in Egypt, that God had called them to, they took a sacrifice, a lamb, and put that blood above their doorpost so that when the angel of death passed over the home, he would pass over and the firstborn son would not die. But the homes of the Egyptians who did not do that, their firstborn son was killed and Pharaoh let the people go and they were able to leave. So this is in the background. This is the picture. Now we have the the Son of God, who is the Lamb of God, who is the one who dies in our place, the firstborn Son who dies for sin. So the picture set here at the very beginning. And also, uh, this Passover day would kick off a, a, a week-long festival of the unleavened bread. And during this festival, they would clean house. Um, they would get every ounce or every speck of yeast out of their house. They'd cleanse the house of all the yeast and they, it would be a symbol of their hasty departure out of Egypt, that they didn't have time to let that bread rise. So it's a picture of that. So we have that in the background. So we have a cleansing of one's home, of all the yeast in the background. We have bringing of an unblemished lamb to sacrifice and the holiness picture there. And these things are going on in the background. And Jesus then goes and goes to the temple as we would expect to worship. And we remember, too, the temple this is a significant place. This is God's designed and designated place for him to demonstrate and be amongst his people. Uh, and it was a place where people would go to pray and to worship and to sacrifice and to sacrifice for their sins and sacrifice for sacrifices of thanksgiving. And here the Passover lamb sacrificed. And here Jesus enters in. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He is the one, as we saw earlier in the prologue of John, that he is Jesus who came and dwelt among us, who tabernacled uh, amongst us, that he took on flesh. And again, that picture of one who's the temple, and we're going to see that Jesus even refers to himself as the temple, uh, the new temple here. So God incarnate comes, and he dies, and we're going to see that there's no need soon um, of any other sacrifice but Jesus. So Jesus enters in, and even his Entering into the temple, he's fulfilling prophecy of the Messiah. 
Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. This is one that we looked at when we were talking about John the Baptist, um, where it prophesied of, of one to come to be the forerunner of the Messiah. But it also talks about the Lord appearing. Let me read that. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into the temple. Here we see the Lord God, Jesus. He enters the temple. Then verse 14. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. So as Jesus enters, he go, enters into the temple and he's in the outer court, which most likely he's in the, what would be called the court of the Gentiles, the area that was open for people of all nations to come and pray and to worship the one true God. And he enters in, it's become a, a marketplace. Uh, and before we, we go much farther, though, it's a good place to pause. There's sometimes some question about this passage because in the Gospel of John, there's this account of Jesus cleansing the temple that's at the very beginning of his ministry. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's another account of Jesus cleansing the temple that's at the very end of the ministry, the last week of the life of Jesus. So there might be questions, well, what's going on here? There's big debate about exactly what's happening. So you might have to dig in if you want to find all the details. But um, just in short, there's some that believe that this account um, here in John is the same as the account in Matthew, Mark, uh, yeah, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, but that John, for thematic and teaching purposes, he moves it to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it's true that there's often that the gospel writers, they didn't necessarily write in a strict chronological manner. Sometimes they would pair stories together for, to teach um, at different points and purposes. And it would be understood that it wasn't a mistake of John, but purposeful moving. But as I kind of studied more and read some different um, different theologians and people that I really trust and kind of even reading through and studying and thinking about my own, it seems like, you know, that there's probably two different cleansings of the temple that we have here because they have different details. There's a different interaction with the religious leaders. There's different words of Jesus that we see, and they seem to be distinct cleansings of the temple, similar but yet distinct. And even in this passage that we have today, we'll see that Jesus speaks about how he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And in the other Gospels, we don't have those words in the cleansing part, but we have those words come up as Jesus is brought to trial at the end of his life, and they bring accusation against him. And one of the accusations, they twist Jesus' words, and they say that Jesus said that he would destroy the temple and then raise it up in three days. So we still have an account of this, these words of Jesus. So it seems like they're pulling it from this beginning part of Jesus's ministry. So, um, well, uh, we can't go through all the details of it, but if you want to dig in more, there's plenty that you can find on that discussion. But it seems like two accounts, um, two different cleansings of the temple. Well, back to verse 14. So in the temple, again, he, he comes in, and we have all of these sellers that are there in the marketplace that are selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons. And they have come there to sell, and there's money changers. And this would have been a, a market that there's an account that previously had been on the Mount of Olives. So they've taken it from the Mount of Olives, and they've moved it right in to the temple, into the outer court. And the market would have been set up initially to be a market of convenience, because people would travel from long distances, and they would come to Jerusalem, and it would be easier to buy 
a sheep or an ox there at the temple than to have gone a long journey to bring that oxen along. And I can imagine that is just kind of, as I wonder, my imagination goes, I wonder if at home you would sell an oxen, get that money, and then you're like, you go and then buy when you get there. So it, there was some provision there. And then the money changers, why were there money changers there? Well, the money changers were exchanging currency for the temple tax because they would come with their local currency and there would be a specific currency that would be needed to pay the, the, the temple tax which was paid by all conscientious Jewish males of 20 years or older. So they would come and they would change. So there was some convenience and help for the market, but it had been moved to the, into the temple and there were motives and things that were all wrong here. So the issue in itself was not the selling of the animals or the exchanging of money, but it's the motivation, the exploitation, and the location and the defilement of the temple that's happening here and that first issue is that there's apparent exploitation being done here. This is a time ripe to earn some extra money and gain off of these, this religious activity. And we see in the, the second cleansing of the temple where Jesus speaks of the area being changed, moved, and being converted to a den of thieves. Um, so it even speaks of it in the term of there being robbery happening here excuse me, of the people. So here, there's application for us. There's people still today, they try to, to step in and gain and profit wealth off of, of worship, uh, off of people. Sometimes there are those who, who throughout the ages and still happens today where maybe through a TV program or radio show where they say, send us money and you'll receive a blessing. Um, and I think that's a motivation to, to gain wealth off of those who uh, might send them money. Um, there's other things that happen. There's also being um, a pastor here the last five or six years, there, there are companies that try to take advantage of churches like you wouldn't believe. It's crazy. The profit off of us. But then there's also even recently, um, there's a, a well-known church that they um, have... They do worship concerts, and they do it with a worship concert and a, a preaching and kind of do a church service, and they go around the nation and they do that, but they profit greatly off of it. I've read recently of ticket prices of hundreds of dollars to go see this um, worship service. Um, up to the highest tickets were actually above $1,000, and um, I think that is profiting and gaining um, off of the worship. So it happens today. We need to to be thoughtful. Um, and then also, there's motivation, crooked motivation in the relocation. So they've moved this market from the Mount of Olives and they put it into the temple. They've put it there for even greater gain and ease. And we see the anger of Jesus um, as they have moved from this temple into the, the place where God is to be worshipped. They've moved it into the court of Gentiles where people from all nations were to be able to come in and worship. And can you imagine the scene too? Just think of it. I don't know if you've ever been to an outdoor market before, like maybe in another country, or maybe you've been um, to a, a farm auction, uh, sell barn or something. And um, overseas I've been to markets where you have live animals. And uh, it is not a peaceful place. It is not a place 
that's welcoming to worship and prayer. I can tell you that. It's loud, it's stinky, it's dirty, it's not a place of worship. So they've clearly defiled this place. I thought it would be good, especially with kids here today, to have an object lesson where I could have opened the doors and brought in a couple cows and some sheep, maybe a fainting goat or two. And that would have been exciting, but it would have been really hard to pay any attention um, to what was being said or to pray or to sing. Um, but this is the picture that's going on here. John MacArthur, he says it this way. What has begun as a service to the worshipers had under the corrupt rule of the chief priest. So he even points that the chief priests had to have been able, they, they allowed this to happen. Um, they had put their stamp of approval on it. It, it degenerated into an exploitation, exploitation and usury. Religion had become external crass and materialistic. The temple of God had become a robber's den. And we see that in when we started in Mark, when the second cleansing of the temple, where Jesus said, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And we're reminded that even in that account of Jesus cleansing, that it was a place for all nations, even at the beginning, the first dedication of the first temple, we see that. This is from 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41 through 43. It says, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, so most of us here, <laughs> we've been foreigners, we're Gentiles, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for you shall hear uh, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel. And they, that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So it's really clear that as a people of God gathered, even today, is for all people of all nations, all tongues, all tribes. We should never build barriers. We should only be building bridges to the cross. Amen? Um, I've heard it said before that the church, the banner that we fly over the church today should just be the cross of Jesus Christ. Um, should we, should we should build no barrier to other, any other nation, our people, our country. So our banner that we fly is the cross of Jesus Christ, him crucified and risen, ascended, and interceding for us. So here, that's the picture that we have here. They've come in, they've defiled the place of worship where all the nations were to come and worship the one true God. Verse 15, in making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the table. And he told those who sold pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So here he comes in and just makes a whip. And he, he, he clears out all of those animals. I don't think that whip was for the people. It's for the animals. <laughs> They're whipping them out. It have been like a hot shot um, I just recently met the, the pastor over the, at the God's Country Cowboy Church, and I guess he keeps a hot shot at his pulpit. To I guess I don't know, but anyway, <laughs> so he's ready to 
to clear house. So their picture is whipping. He's, he's, there's animals going. There's tables being flipped over. There's coins that are being scattered in this place. And I, I can just only imagine what it was like. So Jesus, he's clearing house in the most public way possible that he could. He's clearing out, and his anger, his righteous anger, is displayed over the displaced worship, right worship of God in the temple that has turned into this den of robbers. Again, that contrast of the wedding feast to now him coming in with righteous anger and him restoring right worship in this place and in this area. Again, he, he says to them to take all of these things out, clear this away. This is God, the Father's, his house. And they've turned it into a marketplace, a, a place that was for personal wealth and gain, a house of trade. The worship was replaced by um, personal gain. So I think even for us, it would be a, maybe, maybe a bit like if uh, Jonathan began to, to charge for um, our cup and our, our, our wafer <laughs> and then pocketing that money before we could take of the Lord's Supper. It would be defiling the Lord's Supper um, in that. So Jesus, he, he cleans the house. He clears out the temple. And even in so doing, he's fulfilling prophecy. This is just one of those verses, Zechariah 14, 21. But also, you can look at Malachi verse three, chapter 3 that we already looked at, but 1 through 3, it speaks of this as well. As it speaks of the Messiah as being a refiner's fire. But here in Zechariah 14, 21, it says, And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house, and traitor spelled T-R-A-D-E-R, a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So here he cleans out uh, the, those who've, who've made it um, a house of traitors, just clearing out people, fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, showing that he is the Messiah. Then verse 17, John gives us a little commentary here. He says, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now it's not clear. Often when it, it says the disciples remembered, often it's that after Jesus died and rose again that they remembered, but we don't have that note there. So it may have been in that moment they remembered that verse came to their mind from Psalm 69.9. Again, it says, zeal for your house will consume him. So he, Jesus there's a zeal for the glory of God in the house of God, his Father, where God manifests his presence to his people, and they were to come and worship him. It wasn't a place for them to come for worship or for profit. D.A. Carson says this of this passage. He says, Jesus' cleanses of the cleansing of the temple testifies to his concern for pure worship. A right worship with God at the place supremely designated to serve as the focal point of the relationship between God and man. So here we see right worship was to be there and it had been defiled and made something else. And now there's application for us. Whenever we gather together, we gather to worship the one true and living God. And, and we see in the New Testament that as gathered believers that we are the, the temple of God. So we gather together and we are called to, to 
rightly worship the one true and living God. So on a Sunday morning, we need to, to even examine our hearts as we come to worship. And, and not, I'll say, I, I'm proud of all of you that Broncos fans who came and, and didn't allow that to, to, um, to keep you from coming and worshiping. Um, but there's sometimes that things that can, can come in and we think, well, I'm just here because out of obligation. But no, we should come to worship the one true and living God. A.W. Tozer, he says this in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Without, with, I'm sorry, with our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and conscience of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate art or experience a life in the spirit. He says the words, be still and know that I am God, mean uh, next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this middle period of the 20th century. So we're called to, to be still before uh, the one true God. And that's part of why we take that, that silent minute, is to calm our hearts that we might worship him. May we gather together then and be still and know that our God is God. May we come with hearts ready to worship through song and through prayer, even through serving one another and building one another up. In that, we worship what worship our one true God as we serve one another. We worship him as we're ready to listen to God's word. And to not just be passive hearers, but to be those active abiding hearers that we talked about when we studied through James. And then verses 18 through 22. Verses 18 through 22. We have Jesus' prophetic authoritative words that he, he speaks. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? So again, the picture is there's animals loose. They're running. There's money changers that are going out. There's probably coins being picked up. And I can imagine the scene because there would be times in China where there would be some sellers that would set up kind of along the, the market and they didn't have the right permits and things and the police would come and there would be pandemonium and they would go and they'd run it out. But this was happening here and this was just really unheard of to someone come in and flip over these tables and chase out all the livestock with a whip. It's unheard of and people are shocked. It would be a little bit like, I think I used this illustration when we were studying through Mark, but going into a courtroom and, and charging in and, and flipping over the prosecutors and the defendant's table and, and coming in with some great authority, what would happen? You'd be tackled and maybe shot. I don't know, because you just don't do that. You don't have authority to come in and do that. And here Jesus comes in with great authority and the and the leaders, the religious leaders, want to know with what authority are you doing these things? Show us a sign. Show us a miraculous sign legitimizing your actions and your authority here in the temple. Show us. But they didn't realize that he had already given them a sign. He was fulfilling prophecy by being the Messiah coming in and kicking out the traitors that were there. So the Jew Jewish leaders, they asked them this. And then verse 19 we see Jesus answer to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So Jesus responds 
And it's a little bit cryptic and veiled, even such that the disciples, not until the death and the resurrection of, D of Jesus, do they understand fully what's happening here. But he says, destroy this temple in three days, I'll ri raise it up again. And we know, and we're going to see just a little bit, he's speaking about um, his own body. Um, he's speaking about his death at the hands of those same, probably those same Jewish leaders. And three days later, he would rise again. And we see their confusion. Verse 20, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. 46 years, and you'll raise it up in, in three days? And this is the temple where, this is Herod's temple. Herod the Great came in and reconstructed the temple, and it began in about 20 B.C. and finished about 64 A.D. And probably even at that time, there's still some work being done there. And this is saying this is a solid, secure structure, and you're going to destroy it in three days? Or you're gonna, it's going to be destroyed, and you're going to raise it up in three days? They're like, no way. In verse 21, John writes to make clear to, to all of us, again, this is the body of Jesus, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. <coughs> So he's writing, or he's speaking about himself, and John makes clear to us that this is uh, a prophecy of Jesus here. And we know that Jesus is death, that he is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, that he dies and he nullifies the need for those sacrificial animals in the temple for sin, that he replaces that. Later, John, the Apostle John, he's going to write in his, his letters, so you have the Gospel of John, then you have John 1, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And in 1 John chapter 2, this is what John writes, reminding us that Jesus is that sacrificial lamb. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And then he says, He is the propitiation. That is, He's that sacrificial lamb. Atoning sacrifice, that sacrificial lamb, the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus, he's entered into the temple with great zeal for his father's house, and he, he comes in and he cleans it out, he clears it out of everything that is unholy, that is man-centered, that is greed-filled. He clears out that outer court that was the there was worship being replaced, true worship by people of all nations was being replaced by gain of self-interest, of, of wealth. And he was replacing that of where there should be worship. And Jesus, he came and he came to dwell the tabernacle among us and manifest um, to us God the Father. Later, Jesus will say in John 14, he says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he comes in, and now he makes, he, he comes in, and he also, through his death, we're going to see later, and his resurrection is one, the temple who is torn down, and who, that is raised up in three days, that he is one who comes out, and he desires to, in us, to clean out all that is unholy, all that is self-centered, all that is greed-filled. Later we're going to see in, in John, Chapter 15, where Jesus says, Abide in me, and I abide in you. The picture, even, of that we are um, the temple of the Holy Spirit, too, is we have this union with Christ. 
right before that verse in John 14, or John 15, the abide in me and I will abide in you, Jesus says to the disciples, already you are clean because of the words that I have spoken to you. So Jesus even speaks to the disciples as you've cleaned because they've heard the words of Jesus. They've heard the good news. They've heard the gospel and they have believed and they have been washed and forgiven. Maybe it's a bit like that picture last week of those stone jars that were empty and that Jesus had them filled with water and then he turned that to the brim with new wine. There's a newness. There's a newness of life as we looked at 1 Corinthians 517 that anyone is in who is in Christ is a new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come and there's a new creation that has in Christ that Jesus comes and he cleans and clears us out we are new creations we are temples of the Holy Spirit and God has authority to to clean out to clean house in our life as well and we should have zeal even the same zeal of Christ to clean out and clear out things that are unholy in our life. Later in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, the apostle Paul would write this. He says, flee from sexual immorality. For every other sin a person commits is outside his body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you who you have from God. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So here's even a command reminding us that in Christ that and now that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that we are called to even clear out. He specifically talks about sexual immorality, but there's application to all sin. We're called to be a people who are holy. Recently I've been reading a book by uh, Pastor Kevin DeYoung about, it's called The Whole in Holiness, and he, one of the chapters is, uh, he says, be who you are. And he's saying, we've been united with Christ to live that way. <laughs> live that way. Um, we're called to that. And then verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember that he had said this. And they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So here we see that the disciples that later, at the death and the resurrection of Jesus, they look back to this and they remember, ah, oh, Jesus was speaking about himself. And they remembered those things. And what did they do? They believed. They believed Jesus. And this is more than just an intellectual belief, but they trusted. They entrusted themselves to Jesus and they believed in him. They knew that and found that Jesus' words were reliable and true. And we too, we can read the words of Jesus and read all of scripture and we can experience the life-changing work of our God in us through Christ. And we can have more than just an intellectual faith, but a genuine faith in Jesus Christ and trusting ourselves to him as our Lord and our Savior. And he might want to just come in and clean house with great zeal, but it's for our life and for our joy and for our wholeness. It's by his grace that he desires to to clean house and we are called to allow him to, to do that in us well, I'll just go real quick we got three more verses here um, three maybe four um, we finish up today but here we see Jesus's comprehensive knowledge of the hearts of all people and really this is a bit of a transition between the cleaning cleansing of the temple to some of the stories that we have 
in the next couple chapters. We have one of Nicodemus, the Pharisee, and we see that Jesus sees right into his heart and knows him and knows his thoughts and knows who he is. And then we have an account of the, the Samaritan woman at the well. Again, he knows everything about her and he calls her to true belief and true worship. So we have this connecting passage that says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And indeed, no one um, and, and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what he what was in man. I'm sorry. Knew what was in man. So here we have this passage uh, about Jesus. Um, some accounts where he was in Jerusalem at the Passover. That he performed other miracles. That miracles that John doesn't record other than to mention them right here. And people saw them. And what did they do? Uh, it says that they, they believed in his name when they saw those signs. Uh, but then it says, but Jesus, he didn't entrust himself to them. Now, there's a play on words that's here. The word for believe, that those who believed in his name and entrust, it's actually the same word in the Greek. And uh, it might be translated, uh, New Living actually takes that play on words and translates it because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem and at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him, but Jesus didn't trust them or didn't entrust himself to them so we see this picture where people hear and they see these signs but it seems that their belief is just swayed maybe an outward um, belief in him and jesus knows though the true hearts of of all people he knew their sin he knew their their self-seeking duplicity he knew the shallow faith and just responding to these outward miracles and we'll see that in different places in john some examples of that happening. Uh, my pastor in, in Kentucky, the one I mentioned to have been um, reading his commentary on John, he called it a spurious faith. The definition of spurious, I had to like, like what does spurious exactly mean? And um, looked it up in the Webster, and it says, outwardly similar or corresponding to something without having its genuine qualities. So it corresponded to, to faith, but maybe not having true, genuine qualities. And we're going to see even one of the examples is in John 6, where the crowds are around Jesus, but then he teaches about eating the blood and, and the flesh of Jesus. And the crowds are like, we don't know what he's saying, and they leave. And then, again, the, the passage we look at almost every week, where Jesus asks his disciples, are you going to leave too? And Simon Peter says, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. So there's genuine faith there in the life of the believers, or of the, the disciples. So we see in this passage the cleansing of the temple where Jesus comes in in a way, a unique way that we're going to see in most of the rest of John. But he comes in with righteous anger. And for us, we should listen and we should seek to understand what Jesus is doing. And we should be serious. We should have a zeal uh, for right worship of God. And we should be righteously angered where if there are those who come in and try to rob and, and gain personal wealth um, out of a worship uh, of God. But we also are to be a people who are to be serious about our worship as well. May we be serious 
during the week and as we gather together. That it's a time, not just a, a social gathering, not just a time, thing to check off a list of spiritual things we need to do, but genuinely coming to worship the one true and living God. And when we go to our word, the word of God, may we consume God's word and know that we need it so dearly. And, and may we also um, be a people who build bridges and not barriers to the gospel and to worship as well and be thinking through that in our life and our actions and the way we do things that people might come and worship the one true God. Let me pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for, for difficult passages. We thank you for this account of Jesus. We thank you for his righteous zeal, for right worship, and for the holiness of worship and the holiness of your name. Lord, we pray that you would even convict our hearts to remind us that we have trusted in Christ Jesus that we have become the temple of the Holy Spirit and that we also abide in Christ and he abides in us and may we deal seriously with our sin and know that it's for our good and for our joy and for our wholeness. We pray, Lord, do that work in us I even pray this morning, if there's any who are far from you, who are just wrestling what it, what it means to trust in Jesus, that you would stir uh, hearts to trust in you. Lord, we thank you for the new life that we have in Christ. We thank you for um, Jesus Christ, who is one who died for us and then rose again victorious, uh, that we can have a new life today. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll